Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour. It's another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off. Let me ask you something. How often... Do you guys worry about destroying uh, data security uh, securely after you've taken a drive out of a machine, after you decommission your machine? What do you do with it? You throw it away. Do you give it to a friend for a long time in our house? The protocol was after I got done with a drive using it in my machine, it would go to another family member. And that family member would choose to use the drive in however it is they wanted to. Now, for a long time, I would never... I guess, let a hard drive leave the house, leave my immediate circle without verifying that, in fact, all of the data has been removed. And there's a number of different ways to go about removing data from a hard drive. So the typical process is with a tool called Derek's Boot and Nuke, uh, commonly abbreviated as DBAN. And most of us that have worked in IT for any amount of time have at least done something with DBAN. We've DBAN to drive. And essentially, the idea of DBAN is that it writes zeros to all the drive, then it writes ones to all the drive. And then depending on which mode you choose, it'll write zeros again, then ones again, zeros again, then ones again, so on and so forth. And DBAN gained a lot of popularity about 10 years ago or 15 years ago because it conformed to what widely became known as DOD standards, the Department of Defense standards. And so the DOD published standards for destroying data that's sensitive data that resides on government drives. And so I guess the logic went, well, if it's good enough for the government, it's good enough for us. A couple people in the chat room, by the way, if you're not part of our interactive chat room, that is how you can participate in the show. A number of different ways you can do that, actually. But the chat room is one of the most effective ways for you to do it because it doesn't require you to. You can be multitasking. You can be doing other things. If you'd like to join us, join Pound Ask Noah Show in Freenode. R. Walter in the chat room asks, what do I do with my machine? Take out the drive and smash it? For phones, it's either back up the device or smash it. And indeed, it is becoming problematic to try to keep your data secure because the reality is these days, a lot of machines are coming with the RAM and the storage device soldered onto the darn motherboard. And so there's a number of different ways that I we have come up with that uh, you can deal with that and still treat your data securely. And obviously, if you haven't caught up, if you're just joining us for the first time or if you've missed out on the past couple of shows, uh, I suffice to say I'm going through a little bit of a local data consolidation, going through and collecting all of my drives, bringing all that data online into a free NAS box on ZFS, and then, of course, destroying the existing drives. And so this week I went about the process of destroying drives and I, I spent my week researching exactly what's changed 
in the IT landscape, because obviously the way that we went about the process of destroying drives five, 10 years ago has drastically changed from the way that we do it today. One of the things that has come up is SSDs and the way that SSDs function, which are different than regular spinning rust. And so DBAN is very ineffective on SSDs. In fact, it goes far as to say that it damages the SSD while not really providing you any security. So what are the problems with DBAN and why would you be hesitant to use it? Well, for first off, uh, DBAN does not erase the host-protected access, or what's commonly abbreviated HPA. And HPA is a small section of the disk that is used for theft recovery um, from services like CompuTrace. It's designed to prevent the removal of the tracker by normal erasing utilities. And so it's a, a partition on the drive that is not visible to the operating system that the user really has no idea exists and is there primarily for the purpose of uh, facilitating things that the manufacturer wants to do. Now, the problem with HPA is it is possible for rootkits and other software specifically designed to take advantage of the fact that there is a part of the drive that the operating system ordinarily can't access. It is possible to design software to reside on those hidden portions of the drive. And because it's a hidden portion of the drive and not visible to the operating system, it makes it immune from typical threat detection systems like antivirus, malware detection, those kinds of things. Some vendors actually use HPA to restore the original operating system for uh, the machine. So if you've ever had a machine that had a built-in recovery partition where you, you, know, you, uh, you restarted the machine and, and pressed a given keystroke and it booted into a recovery partition, that is, is possible that they're storing that on the HPA section of the drive. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. There is no high likelihood that you are going to run the risk of your data being exploited uh, from this HPR partition because it takes software specifically designed to hide stuff on this partition. It's really not something that uh, is, it's a high risk. And that's why m most people will tell you, and most articles on the internet will tell you that for the most part, DBAN is perfectly sufficient for you as a home user. If you're just trying to keep your data safe, you're trying to keep it out of the hands of, you know, your friends and your colleagues and, and, you just want to generally stay safe. DBAN is probably not a bad way to go, but there are better alternatives and we're going to go through them. So the other problem with DBAN is DBAN does not erase the DCO or the device configuration overlay. Now, this is another hidden protected part of the drive. Many of us, uh, for the, when we first got into IT or into started playing with computers, we were very frustrated because we would go into Best Buy. And we've all had this experience. We'd go into Best Buy, we'd go into Super uh, you know, super Circuits or wherever the, the store was, and we would buy a one terabyte drive. And you'd get it home and you'd plug it in and you'd find that you had 900 and some gigabytes of storage. And you would say, the box says one terabyte. Why don't I have one terabyte? And there's a number of reasons of why the advertised capacity of the drive does not equate to the usable storage that is available to you. These are just some of the reasons why that is. And part of that is the device configuration overlay. Now, again, much, uh, much the same as HPA, the device configuration overlay or DCO is not accessible to the operating system. So if you plug this into your Linux box, you plug this into your Windows box, chances are you're not going to be able to see this. But DCO could be, again, used to make a hard drive look smaller than it is and create space to store data without the operating system being aware and therefore not possible that 
other intrusion detection systems can find it. Now, R. Walter in the chat room says possibly, but a light, but it's not unlike a Lux device will nuke itself after so many attempts. And as far as I'm as far as I'm aware, uh, there is nothing unless I'm jumping in in the middle of a conversation. But as far as I'm aware, there is nothing in DCO or HPA that uh, is is built with security in mind per se, except for the secure race function and the drive itself, which we're going to get to momentarily. Uh, so again, much like HPA, it's very unlikely that your personal data is going to wind up in DCO. Very unlikely that that's going to happen. For the most part, it's not accessible to the operating system, so your file manager doesn't see it, your disk manager doesn't see it. Most programs are not going to try to write there. You're not going to inadvertently write there. It would be because there is a specific threat being targeted against you. That's the reason why you might run into an issue uh, with DCO, DCO or HPA. So what can you do? Well, Again, uh, there are other utilities that you can use to accomplish the same end task that you would use D-Band for. Oh, the last thing, I should mention this. The last thing that D-Band doesn't do is it does not erase remapped sectors. So consider this for a second. You have some bad sectors on a hard drive. We've all seen that. In fact, we have a listener of the show that I have a friendly, I don't know, competition, I guess, going with uh, where he switches between Windows and, and Linux. And we have... M- uh, myself and a couple of other community members have kind of come together and said, okay, let's get you a Linux desktop and let's figure out some of the problems and let's get all of those things settled. And so we did those things. And of course his SSD goes out. And so we ended, he has started to have bad sectors. And so we got him a new one. And, and I think that's all been taken care of now. But the point is we've all experienced bad sectors. Uh, and so when the, those sectors can no longer be read by the host operating system, the operating system begins to ignore those sectors. Now, there may still be data in those bad sectors. In fact, it may even include private data, things that you that is not lost, things that you do not want to get out into the open. But because the drive is reporting that those sectors are bad, the operating system ignores those bad sectors. And when that happens, when you try to run other pieces of software that are specifically designed as tools for your hard drive, they ignore those sectors as well because the operating system is being told, hey, there's nothing here useful. There's nothing we can do with these sectors. Ignore them. And so D-Band makes no effort whatsoever to try to erase data that is stored inside of bad sectors. Now, it may take longer and it may be more expensive, but it is possible to get data off of bad sectors. You can take the drive apart. You can pull the, the, uh, the drive platters out. And it's, very, it's a very fascinating process. And we've actually done this at Speed Technologies a couple of times. Not in-house. We, uh, we outsource it to another provider because it's a very expensive process to do. But essentially, they use something called a clean room. And the way that a clean room works is they have holes in the ceiling and holes in the floor. And they circulate the air uh, and, and pull as much of the debris as humanly possible out of the air. Because if you understand, like, the read head for a hard drive travels something like one micron above the disk platter, like a millionth of an inch, I think, is is one micron, if my math is correct. The, a tiny little speck of dust is Mount Everest to this thing, right? Like, it just, it totally loses itself when this read head comes across Mount Everest, and it, you know, because it's it's traveling so close to the disk head that it, it, it can't function, and that's why drives are typically sealed. Um, and that's why it's very, very expensive because you need this very elaborate room and this very particular equipment to try to get data off of these drives. But it is possible to do that. Another thing that 
is commonly done by data recovery places is they are starting to get hip to the idea of ZFS and RAID configurations. And so if you have a RAID card that has failed, as long as you can give them the make and model of the RAID card, you can send the drives in and they can reconstitute that RAID array, pull the data off of it, put it onto an external drive and mail it back to you. Now, a service like this may cost a couple of thousand dollars. And so it's something that you're probably not going to do for... I guess it depends on how important the data is to you, but it's something that most people don't do for their personal pictures or their documents or data that they believe they've lost. Now, it is something that is done by the federal government. It is something that is done by law enforcement in the course of investigation. And so let's say you have data that you wanted to destroy, not because you're trying to hide something. Again, the Fourth Amendment is not about uh, shrouding illegal activity, but just you have a right to be private. And so you get the opportunity to choose if you want to uh, if, if, if you want to stay private by default or you want to be public by default. And part of that might be, I want to destroy data in such a way that nobody can recover it. And so understand that using DBAN is not a guaranteed way to destroy data in such a way that nobody can recover it. It's just a way that keeps the average person honest. It keeps the honest people honest. It's the same thing of like a deadbolt. We put a deadbolt on our house, but somebody could smash the kitchen, uh, the living room window. It doesn't mean that we don't lock the deadbolt. It just means that we understand that there may be other ways in. So what if we want to secure like Fort Knox? What do you do? Well, there's a free utility that is available called Secure Erase, HDD Erase by CMRR. Now, HDD Erase is a free utility that uses the Secure Erase function built into the firmware of modern hard drives. Now, there's two ways that the Secure Erase function can work, and it kind of depends on how the drive manufacturer has implemented Secure Erase. In some modern SSDs, the way that the secure erase function works is very interesting. The hardware on the device itself actually creates an encryption key, and you can store stuff on the drive. Now, as far as the operating system is concerned and anything else that accesses the drive is concerned, it just presents itself as a block device. But underneath, there is an encryption key, so it is being encrypted. And what happens when you initiate the secure erase function, because SSDs have aware leveling functionality, that is to say, when you tell an SSD, I want to write data, it tries to write to different parts of those NAND sectors so that it doesn't destroy one part of the drive over and over and over again. And so it tries to balance where it's writing to the drive. But the problem with that wear leveling technique is it makes things like DBAN completely useless. Because if I say, write all zeros, write all ones, write all zeros, write all ones, it's trying to balance writing all those zeros to places of the disk that hasn't been written to before, which is not the idea. I want to overwrite my data, right? So the way that the secure race function is implemented in some of those SSDs is it simply destroys the private key for the previously mentioned encryption, thereby rendering the data useless. And it generates a new key, and the drive is now effectively blank. And the idea is the data is all still there. It's all just encrypted, and because the drive no longer has the private key, it has no way to decrypt the data, so the data is essentially as good as destroyed. The other way that secure erase can function is it will actually shred the data on the disk. And this is, this includes HPA. It includes DCO and includes bad sectors. And so essentially what it goes through is it goes through this drive and writes all zeros, writes ones, writes zeros, writes ones, and, uh, and does that in a very secure way. And again, the device manufacturer, depending on how the drive is built and how the drive is designed to function, 
the manufacturer chooses how to implement the secure erase function. So that is really the best way to go if you're trying to destroy a drive. Now, there's some software that you can use. Uh, there's a there's a preferred way to get this done. There's a there is some other ways that if you need to do it a little bit on the on the budget saving side, we'll get to all those in a minute. But as always, your calls go to the front of the line. Mark from Toronto, you're on. Ask Noah. Welcome into the program. Hey, no, it's bad to speak to you. Hey, good to see you. How uh, how can we help? Uh, sure. Uh, if you don't mind, I can start out with a couple of comments before I get into my actual question. That'd be great. Uh, first of all, we're actually connected in a couple of ways. I'm actually uh, using your former X260 that you sold to me. Oh, uh, no kidding! <laughs> There's a blast from the past. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's uh, it's still running Linux the way you intended it. That's awesome. Yeah. So a little backstory. Uh, a little backstory for those that don't know. So when I buy when I buy a new ThinkPad, usually what I'll do is I keep them for a year or so, and then I'll sell the I eBay the old one, and I I buy the new one sometimes on eBay. And uh, I, I guess Mark was the one that purchased the 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 two sixty. What was funny was I got a message from him, and I had a I had a, a JB uh, a Super Key sticker that was apparently I included it in the pictures, and he said, "Don't take that sticker off. I want to keep that." And uh, and I don't did I ship it to you with Linux then? You did, yeah. Yeah, so that, that's kind of cool. Uh, although I did wipe it and put on Arch, but uh, sure. Yeah, but you, you but you didn't like. Uh, we didn't know each other. It was not like it was something we worked. I mean, you just happened to stumble across it on eBay. No. Yeah, I mean, it was a coincidence. I, I was a long time last listener, and uh, when I saw it on there, I was like, "What a world!" <laughs> that's I, awesome. Of course, had to buy it then for so sure. That was my justification <laughs> at the time. That's awesome. How can we help today? Yeah, actually, furthermore, we're double connected because uh, okay. you actually visited uh, uh, community nonprofit uh, wireless internet service provider called uh, yes. DBIUA. Yes, yeah. I'm actually I'm actually doing uh, volunteer consulting for them remote here from Toronto. They're all the way uh, over there in Washington uh, State. That's awesome. So we're uh, double connected. Yeah, I know it's kind of funny, right? Small world. It is. Yeah, so anyway, let me get back to some comments. I mm-hmm. believe a couple of episodes, you, you, uh, a gentleman asked about a way to uh, monitor some hosts uh, remotely via like some kind of SMP tool. Uh, I'd like mm-hmm. to recommend to that gentleman that he actually uses LibreNMS instead mm. of Zabbix, especially if they are network devices. Uh, his mileage there would probably be a lot better than it would be with Zabbix, as long as they are network devices he's trying to uh, uh, manage there. And uh, furthermore, I know that you and another gentleman in the last episode uh, were talking about the um, the shortcomings of the unified gateway. Yes, yes. Now, I like to, yeah, and, and everyone knows there are many. Uh, I like to ask you. I mean, have you tried the alternative, which is the edge router? I have. Yeah, uh, can unify. So I'm, I'm, I'm. Here's the thing that confuses me about the edge router, right? So the thing that I don't like, I get the the idea between the security gateway because it's a hundred and fifty dollar device. You adopt it into your existing infrastructure, the controller, and now that you can make all the network changes. So I get that device. When it comes to the when it comes to the edge router, as far as I know, the edge router is a sixty dollar device, and you can't adopt it into the software. So it's like the opposite. It has full local control, but you can't do anything with the controls, right? Yeah, so actually how it works is it's actually similar to like how Cisco and Juniper operate these days, where they sell the same chassis with different software, mm-hmm. like a Nexus device is similar to uh, an NCS device, uh, etc. So it's usually the same actual hardware, but they load different software on it for Unify. But the edge router, it could be, for example, like at the uh, three-port gateway, it could be like the edge router light, for example, in, uh, in the uh, Edge OS platform. Uh-huh. It's basically just a, a fork of the last version of Viata, which has like Debian, Jesse, and then uh, Quagga on it. 
Uh, and basically, therefore, you have to just log into the device or via their little web GUI that's actually staple on the device itself, and you would manage it that way. So yes, it doesn't interact with the unified gateway, but the, the best benefit about it is that you can actually get past all those restrictions. You can go yeah. right down to the actual configuration itself and do anything that you require, right? So the so thing I the thing I like about the factor in price. I I've I don't own the I don't own the Edge Router Lite. I own the Edge Router X. Uh, and I was just looking at some of the differences. One of the things I notice on the Edge Router Lite that I really really like the Edge Router X. As far as I know, uh, it just has uh, Ethernet. It doesn't have console ports. Whereas the it looks like the Edge Router Lite actually has a console serial console port, so you can get in there and actually, like you say, dig down and actually program. The, 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 here's I guess what I here's I guess where my where my confusion comes into. So I spend $97 for the edge router light. I can't manage it from the controller, but I can manage it directly. If I don't, if it doesn't tie into the controller at all, I don't get the deep packet inspection. I don't get any of the benefits of the controller software. Then I'm back to asking what the benefit of the edge router light is, as opposed to like a Microtech 2011 that has considerable more features. And also the only downside to the Microtech is you can't manage it from the Unify software, which I can't do with the Edge Router. So I, it's kind of a catch-22. Well, you actually do get the DPI, the deep packet inspection. Oh, you, you do? Go into the actual GUI of it. Yes, you do. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's a feature native to the actual platform. And then Unify just actually extracts that into a single pane of glass management, essentially, right? If you log into the GUI of the Edge Router itself, then you can actually see the DPI stats. Right, the okay. same whole NSA level of who's browsing this type of yeah. stuff, etc. Right? So, so the, the so, native to the actual platform. So the edge router incorporates a very basic version of the controller software, and so you you would get all the same information. You just have to look in two different places to get it. It just has like a basically a, a Python-based GUI that you can log in on the device itself if you choose to use it that way. Alternatively, you can go to the CLI, which is operationally like when you do your show commands, it's very much like Cisco. Yeah, you do configuration is very much like Juniper, right? I love that. Awesome, awesome. I will it, check it, that out. We'll have to get it. really powerful, yeah. We'll get an Edge Router Lite in here, and we'll play with it a little bit. And, and I might have to revisit this whole uh, this whole stance on, on Ubiquity. Again, I love the company. I just feel like they have some shortcomings, and I, I wish they would address them. But uh, maybe we'll get there. Well, I mean, like that and the GPL violations back in 2015, so. Yeah, well, I, you know, I feel like they've paid penance for that. You know, when they came out with their, their Cloud Key 2, I was, I was pretty vocal about giving them a hard time about this integrated platform and getting away, getting, oh, somehow my, uh, my headphones went out. Well, anyway, I was getting away from, I was getting upset with them for their inability to uh, present a, 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 a coherent process to people and say this is what made you guys big this is what got you guys started and you're not you're not listening to that you're not honoring that and i thought that was pretty bad and so uh yeah no it's it's been an interesting process uh, i thank you very much for the call uh, 775 or uh, 855 450 noah that's 855-450-6624 the email live at com. and i apologize for this i this is terrible but this is what uh, this is what live radio does I uh, my headphones have somehow stopped working and I have to uh, just duck under the, the the desk here for just a second and see if I can figure that out. Hang tight real quick. All right, let's see if that works better. All right. <laughs> Just not really sure what to do. Anyway, Mark, did that answer your question? 
Yeah, I would say so. The last thing I would mention is that the Chaz also mentioned as well is that there actually is UNMF, which is UNMF's yes. new vision, because every year they have a new vision, right? Yep. Now, currently, I'm using a lot with the, the WISP, and it's very much in the alpha and now going into beta state. Wouldn't necessarily recommend it for production, but it's essentially their, their vision for the future to get everything all tied in together. Like from UNMF, yeah. you can uh, manage all the radios as well as all of the routers, the, including Edge OS, uh, the actual, like, uh, like GPON devices, and finally the unified devices eventually. And they even have their like billing platform built into that. That's their vision for the single sign-on yeah. or the single uh, pane of glass. Mm-hmm. But it's just not there yet. So uh, someday I would love to say that that's the way to go, the, the competitor for Unify. But currently at this time, it's not really Yeah, I, we have at, at UNMS set up for our, like our WISP stuff, and we're using it to manage the long-distance radio. So, I mean, they do a really fantastic job, and I agree with you. They've got, they're skating to the right goal. We're just not quite there yet. 855-450-NO, it's 855-450-6624. I am so sorry. I'm probably going to mispronounce your name. Is it Adu? That's right. My hey. name is Adu Vanua. How are you today? Hey, man. Good. Welcome into the program. How can we help? Yeah, I'm a first-timer, and uh, one of my really good friends told me to call you, Noah. So um, back in 2000, from 2006 to 2008, I ran a Linux business when I managed uh, uh, systems for uh, small businesses in Philadelphia. Okay. And then uh, I joined Corporate America, a um, couple of Fortune 100 companies and banks. Mm-hmm. And uh, recently I've been laid off. I live right now in Chicago. So I was just wondering, you know, if you had some ideas, you know, and some new businesses, you know, that I can tackle on. I know it's been a while for me to be in the system administration space. I've been uh, uh, developing uh, uh, systems in Java. But, okay. Um, uh, I think, you know, my core has always been uh, 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 as a system engineer. Okay. Well, let's start with this. Uh, for, for starters, let's go with some, some basic ground rules, okay? Small business, yes. and you said you've, you've done a business before, right? I, I started one when I was in college, mm-hmm. when I was doing uh, my graduate studies in computer science. Okay. And it was pretty good because uh, I had a good uh, an amount of uh, clients. Uh, it was uh, 2006. And uh, basically what I did, they used to have uh, uh, VPN solutions. They used to have uh, email solutions. And um, I converted everything to uh, Linux systems using Debian and uh, Zimbra for the email, open VPN. Awesome. Uh, you name it. You know, I, I just did all that stuff for them. And they just paid me uh, a very specific amount of money every month, and it was good. But in 2008, a lot of my clients went out of business. So I had to take a job. And uh, I've been uh, working as a, a software engineer now for about uh, 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 about 10 years. Uh, so I lost touch a little bit with uh, uh, managing systems, I'm looking for another, um, how do you say, I'm looking for another inspiration for, from a really technical and knowledgeable person such as you and your crew. Okay, so let's start with this. Let's start with the non-technical stuff, okay? Uh, as you're aware, because you've mm-hmm. done it once before, uh, small business is risky. It's loaded with risk. And so what we want to do is uh, is try to do everything possible to mitigate that risk. And so if you're working, do you have a full-time job right now? I don't. I've been laid off. Okay. So if you had a job, I would tell you don't 
leave your full-time job until you've spun your small business up to the point that you can just easily walk across. Think of it like a boat in a dock, right? You want to get the boat as close to the dock as possible so that you can walk calmly onto the boat and not worry about winding up in the water. Now, the bad news is you're in the water, right? You're not, you don't have a dock. So we're, we're, uh, we're swimming. And so, so, and that's okay. That's all right. Because what, what you can do is you can turn that into motivation. I quit my job in 2009. I gave up. I said, I'm done doing this. I cannot restore one more windows box. And I walked away. Now, 10 years later, I look back on that decision. I go, that was a dumb thing to do, particularly because I found out three months later, my wife was pregnant. But, uh, but be, be that as it may, I found myself in a very similar situation that you did. You maybe have wound up there, not by choice. I wound up there by choice, but we started the same place. So fr- you can turn that into inspiration and you can turn that into motivation, right? When you go okay. in, when you go to start your business, I would tell you do not under any circumstances, Utilize debt because debt is going to increase the risk to an already risky proposition. So if you're going to start a business, do it without debt. And that may be, that may mean being a little bit more creative. It may mean buying some used stuff instead of buying new stuff. It may mean you structure your deal such that when you go and sell a system like you're selling Wi-Fi or whatever, whatever your model is going to be, when you sell that product or service, um, you negotiate into those deals. Hey, I need 50% up front or I need 100% of it up front. You have to pay for it first and then I'll order the products and I'll come and install them. Nothing wrong with that at all. But offload that risk onto the clients. Don't assume the risk for yourself because what's going to happen uh, is you're going to order you know, 10 access points at 250 bucks a pop and then all of a sudden your client's going to go, eh, you know, I changed their mind. We're not interested. And now all of a sudden you got $2,500 worth of product you don't know what to do with. Uh, so that adds risk and you don't want to do that. So that would be my first tip. My second tip is, and you knew this was coming, utilize open source and Linux where possible because utilizing open source and Linux is going to do three things. The first thing it's going to do is it's going to limit the amount of outgo on your business. And every business exists in two columns, profits and uh, and costs. And so what you're trying to do is keep the cost as low as possible and jack the profits up as much as possible. And to do that, you can utilize Linux and open source software and the community will come around you and help you start a business without having to have a bunch of capital to get started. It's one of the things that got me started. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Linux and open source because I didn't have the money at 19 years old to go buy a $400 a year subscription to QuickBooks. I didn't have the money at 19 years old uh, with 200 bucks in my pocket to go pay for G Suite or a hosted exchange or any of that stuff, right? So I had to rely on on open source projects that could give me the exact same quality for a lot less money. And what I found was that that alone mm-hmm. is a brand differentiator, right? When we go to look, when you go to sell yourself, when you go out into the market and you're going to go sell yourself, every Every grocery store has bananas. Every grocery store has apples. Every grocery store has milk. Every grocery store has orange juice, right? So why do you shop at one grocery store over the other? It's not because of the bricks. It's because of the mortar in between the bricks. It's not every store has the bricks, right? They all have the same groceries. The reason that you shop at the grocery store that you shop at is because of the mortars that connect the bricks. The fact that they have home delivery, the fact that they lay out their store in a particularly nice way, the fact that they have your bank's ATM right on the outside of the, you know, whatever it is, there's other little tiny things that every other store doesn't have. And that's why you pick that store. So when you're crafting your business, identify what the mortar is going to be. You can't just walk out into the market and say, okay, I've hung a shingle up. Now I'm doing Linux and open source consulting. Come choose me instead of the other guy. That's not going to get you anywhere. You have to identify what your mortar is going to be. What makes customers want to come to you 
rather than the other guy. I'll tell you what it is for me. I answer okay. the, I answer the phone, okay? I have picked up more clients because we take calls and they say we called our network company, we need them here now, our blah 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 is down. Can you help us? And I say, we'll get somebody there in two hours. I have anybody that we hire. One of my one of my interview questions is, when you're working, I need you to commit mm-hmm. to a two-hour response time. No matter what is happening, if we get an emergency call and you're the person that's on call covering emergencies that day, you need to get to wherever the client is or remote or however you're going to facilitate it, but you need to get there within two hours. And when we negotiate contracts with clients, that's one of the things we tell them. Hey, if you have a problem... You give us a call. We're going to respond to that emergency within two hours because that's what we try to do. The, the 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 third thing: don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Okay, when you go out to do okay. when you go out to do something like setting up a, a server to host your business, or when you go up to 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 set up a, a service, or you buy into an email service, or whatever it is, right? Try to spread up those things as modular as possible because it enables flexibility down the road. What do I mean by that? If you let's just say, for example, that there was some company out there, I don't know, maybe their name is Google, and they say for 19 bucks a month, we'll give you calendar, we'll give you email, we'll give you cloud storage, we'll give you sync, we'll give you this, we'll give you that. All of this stuff is included, 19 bucks a month. That's a very appealing thing as a, as a starting business owner. Hey, I can go out there and I can spend 20 bucks and I can get all of these services included in a bundle. Here's the problem with that. All of a sudden, you look around and you say, hey, I don't like the fact that my email is being spied on. So... I want to go over here to FastMail, or I want to go over here to ProtonMail. Well, guess what? Your calendar and your your cloud sync and all of this other stuff is all tied in to this one central service. And now it makes it very difficult to move any of those things off of the central platform. Whereas if you start from the beginning and say, I'm going to find the best mail provider ever. Okay, now I've got that. I'm going to find the best ticket prov- you know, solution ever. Okay, now I've got that. I'm going to find the best knowledge base ever. Okay, now I've got that. Now we can start using APIs and other ways to tie all of these systems together, but have them as modular and, and interdependent as possible because that will allow you flexibility down the road. And the third thing I would tell you, and this is kind of an abstract thing and it takes a little bit to, to wrap your head around it, but since you've done a business before, you'll probably understand this. And what I would tell you is build boxes and put stuff in the boxes. And what I mean by that is if look for standards that already exist, if you're going to go and install a Wi-Fi system, look at what standards are out there and, 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 and adhere to one of those standards. If you're going to go install cameras, go figure out a standard and then implement that standard. If you're going to do uh, you know, an IP scheme, come up with an IP scheme and you're going to go do small business networking, come up with an IP scheme that you're going to use and implement that standard. And on every one of your clients, where it's appropriate anyway, implement that standard. And if a standard doesn't exist, you create it. Okay. When we went to do, uh, when, 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 when type C chargers came out, we were, I would, I, I bet you we were the first company in Grand Forks to offer a full suite of type C accessories, docks, chargers, you name it. Right. And I ordered, I don't know, probably 50 different bricks and 50 different cables. And we tried every single one of those until we found the ones that worked with every single model computer. And that's the one we stock and that's the one we sell. And so I have the brick, I have the cable and those are each individual for sale separately. And then I have them for sale as a kit. And I know that is the best Type-C charger out there because I've tried them all. And so that is our, quote, 
standard for Type-C chargers. So when a customer says they have a Type-C laptop, here you go. Here's a standard. Now, that standard doesn't exist anywhere outside of AltaSpeed Technologies. It exists because I've created it. And so I would, what I would tell you is make sure you're doing everything for a reason. You have intentionality. So if you don't have a standard for something, you create it yourself and write down and say, when we do something like this, this is the thing that we use. When we set something up, here's the process we set it up. Even if we is just you for right now. Then as it relates to the actual technical side, what I would tell you is keep track of metrics. If you go and do system consulting and you help somebody with a backup solution, document how much time you spent and how much you were able to build the client. When you, if you go and do access points installation or POS installation or something like that, document how long you spend doing that, document the cost it t- took you to get that thing implemented, and then how much money you made. And pay attention to where your high profit margin items are. Those are the things, as long as you're passionate about them, those are the things that you want to spend some time focusing on. Is that, is that helpful to you? This is really helpful, Noah. You know, this is absolutely helpful. I know there is other callers on the line waiting, you know, for your advice. Um, just one last thing. In mm-hmm. terms of sales, do you have any suggestions in how to acquire new clients? I'm um, in the new city here in mm-hmm. Chicago. Uh, any ideas? So, cold calling is a very ineffective strategy, right? There are places that do it, but it has something like less – and you can – Again, metrics are your friend. The more information that you have, the better a business owner you're going to be. Let me give you a little example to illustrate this. Next time you go into a restaurant and there's a line, notice and look at your watch. The the lady that is standing out front will tell you, oh, it's going to be a 15-minute wait. Now, if you watch your watch, nine times out of 10, they will get you seated equivalent or faster than whatever time they tell you. Now, how can they do that? Everybody... Everybody eats differently. Everybody orders different food. Everybody has different eating habits. Everybody has different talking habits. Everybody is different. And yet somehow in every restaurant in America, when you go into a restaurant, they can tell you about how long it's going to be to sit down. How do they do that? Metrics. They pay attention to how long it takes from the time that somebody walks through the front door till the time that somebody walks back. And if you do that enough times, no matter how wide and varied society is, no matter how different people are, you can, you can mathematically come up with an average of how long it's going to take before a table clears up. And that's why they're so accurate. So in your business, you want to do the same thing. You want to become a student of your own business and you want to pay attention to all of the metrics. So when it comes to sales stuff, I pay a lot of attention to, uh, to how we, how we promote sales and how effective sales strategies. And what you find is that cold calling has less than a 10% close rate. So if I call 10 people, less than one of those people, I'm actually going to make a sale for. So what are some effective, uh, strategies in trying to gain new sales? The biggest thing is networking. It's always who, you know, the first large client I ever got, it was a, uh, it was somebody that we met that, that a, a, an employee of mine met at a bar and she happened to be the general manager of an establishment. And he casually mentioned that we do contract IT services and she was very interested and they wound up being one of our biggest clients ever. Uh, that's, that's networking. It's not, there's no sales class that's going to teach you that. There's no, there's no model that's going to teach you that. But the, the truth is it, it is about being a genuine human being and walking up alongside somebody that has a problem and saying, Hey, 
I am going to provide you a cost-effective solution, uh, you know, for a good price, and I'm going to do a really great job. I'm true to my word. I answer the phone. I charge a decent rate. So you're going to pay me well for what I do, but you're going to be very happy with the service I provide. And we have people all the time that call. They get a quote for something. They hang up and say, that's too much. I'm going to try and do it myself. They call us back a couple weeks later and say, you know what? I just, just kidding. That was, yeah, that was the best money I ever spent, right? One of those guys that, that exactly that entire that I just laid out, that entire process played out, and he has actually become, him and I have become good friends. But the very first thing he ever asked us for as a business, and I didn't know him from John at the time, uh, he asked us to do something, and we gave him a fair quote for it, and he was sticker shocked. Uh, so don't be afraid to put yourself out there and say, I'm going to do quality work, and quality work deserves a high price tag, and I'm okay charging a high price tag as long as I deliver quality work. One of the things that I've learned, too, is you've got to learn your limitations, right? I, When we started AltaSpeed Technologies, we have treated every customer, I think, very, very well. The problem it was we tried to expand out into a national coverage, and we found very quickly that the kind of quality of service that you can provide to somebody that exists across the country is a little bit different than the kind of quality of service that you can provide somebody who is just in your own backyard. Because when push comes to shove, I can't just atom bomb the thing and say, let's send three guys over there and figure out what the heck is going on and get these people online. No, you basically are stuck to remote troubleshooting over the phone because that's the only practical way to do it. And so you have to learn where those limitations are and then make sure that you're not promising more than you can deliver. Um, but but as far as, as sales go, your best strategy is networking, going out and meeting with business owners, walking in with a, a thing of donuts and saying, hey, I know you have somebody doing your IT work. I want to make you a better deal. So here's a here's a here's a here's a gift. Here's something from from a couple donuts for you guys to munch on. I got some business cards in here, some pens in here, and if you ever run into a problem with your IT provider, if they're doing a great job for you, by all means keep them. If you ever run into an issue, I just want to let you know that there are some other alternatives and I would love to earn your business. And 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 give that away. And I have some little cards that I carry with me. And it says something to the effect of, we'll fix that for free. And so if I meet somebody on an airplane or I meet somebody in an airport or, or driving around or at a restaurant or something and they're, ha- they're having a frustrating experience with technology, I'll hand them one of those cards and I'll say, hey, you know what? If you ever need some help, give us a call. We'd be happy to take care of that for you. And uh, there'd be no charge. And uh, th- we've done that from everything from replacing a screen in a smartphone up to a, a server administration thing. And they've and all of those things have happened because I had those cards with me and I give those services away. It's a way of sampling uh, your business experience. Absolutely. Noah, thank you so much. This has been inspiring and enlightening. Thank you very much. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for the call. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. I'd love to hear from you guys. Uh, great questions this hour. Absolutely great questions. So the conclusion, D-Ban is good enough for most people, but if you want to make sure that your data is 100% destroyed, then use the secure erase function. And then what I do, and this is a bit over the top, and I admit that this is a bit over the top, but it's what I do. I drive a 10-penny a, a nail through the drive platters itself all the way through, and then I take the drive and throw it in my fire pit until it becomes as close to ash as I can get the metal. And then it goes into the trash. Uh, and that's my way of destroying hard drives, and it's the way that you should destroy hard drives if you absolutely don't want anything to happen to those uh, to that data, or if you want to make sure that data doesn't get out into the into the open. Hey, as we continue down the path of data and local data and owning your data and different solutions that revolve around data, the next uh, project on my list is to revisit backup solutions. Now, I am old school and do all of my backups with NFS and RSync because I'm weird that way, and I just like the 
predictability and the way that it's always been done, the way it's always worked for me. And I just, I keep doing that, but I'm interested. Is there a better backup solution? Now you can call it 855-450-NOAA. You can email us live at asknoahshow.com, or we are going to have a, a, a poll form in the show notes. Now you can get those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Head over there and take the poll. Let me know what your backup solution is. I want to hear a description. Do you take a USB hard drive, plug it into your computer and just highlight all of the folders and paste them in from one drive to the other? It may be crude, but it is an effective backup strategy, is it not? Do you plug in a USB drive and do you use uh, R-Sync? Do you plug it in? And uh, Kazell in the chat room says he uses Restic for his backups. There's a lot of people that use Bacula. There are so many solutions out there for backup on Linux. I'm interested. Would you please outline your backup strategy? If you think you have the best backup strategy, and it sounds like the chat room is kind of kind of stuck on on Restic, if you think that you have the best backup strategy, I'd love to hear from you again. Podcast.asknoahshow.com. Take the take the survey, or just send an email to live at asknoahshow.com and outline your backup strategies, and we may choose to cover that in a future episode. If nothing else, all of this information that I'm slowly compiling, uh, we're going to turn it into something. I just don't know what. It could be a video. It could be some little handout guide. It might be a really dedicated, maybe a long extended podcast episode. I'm not really sure. But I do know that I'm spending a disproportionate amount of time learning about data and storage and backup solutions and stuff like that. And it's something I want to share with you because I think that I can't be the only one that is interested in moving off of cloud data and getting onto some local data. Not going to have the amount of time that I wanted to spend on this article, but this is very, very interesting. The open source power. IBM is finally taking the next steps to open sourcing the instruction set uh, for an architecture of its power family Processors. Now, we have had some interviews on the show that have exemplified exactly what the power architecture is. An alternative to ARM, an alternative to Intel, a very powerful processor and a very powerful architecture that is competition to the x86 world. And it's taking off like wildfire for those that want a very powerful machine. Um, so competition is always good. And we have stood by that you know, pretty much 100%. The competition in any market is good. But if you've ever wanted to create your own power processor and you were wondering, like, how much does that cost to do that? What does it cost to license that technology from IBM? Well, you have an opportunity. So a little bit of a history lesson. IBM uh, started with the power architecture a long time ago. They started with the creation of PowerPC Alliance between Apple, IBM, and Motorola. That was back in, like, 91. And uh, as they started to get serious about the power architecture for RS6000, Unix kind of took off. This is when Sun Microsystems was around and HP was was circling IBM's proprietary mainframe technology. And uh, there was a lot of competition in this space. IBM was preparing to move to the proprietary AS400 platform uh, for common hardware and then the RS6000. Uh, you know, you had a, you had Windows servers that were years away from becoming a reliable solution that people trusted in the industry. And briefly, it ran on power iron. So along comes this guy named Linus Torvalds. And I think we all know this story. He creates the first Linux kernel, which eventually became, uh, the key to keeping power iron alive in the HPC centers. So Motorola and IBM had their challenges bringing server class processors to the market and to move to 64 bits. Uh, they found that to be very, very difficult. And interestingly enough, it was IBM's AS400 processor 
uh, and the team in Rochester, Minnesota, which is right next door to me, which actually saved the day by creating a 64-bit PowerPC chip that also uh, had a vector processor embedded in it. Now, what is a vector processor? I have absolutely no idea, but the article that I have says there's a vector processor embedded into it. Eventually, Sun Microsystems went up the rocks uh, with their UltraSpark 3 system, and HP had their Intel, uh, it was it Itanium, uh, which had their own problems. Um, so all that to say, we have gotten to a point now where professionals really want to get work done. And they choose Linux, space, Linux, animation, Linux. If you want a very powerful system, Linux. If you want a reliable embedded system, Linux. So it just makes sense to get competition for hardware. And OpenPower does exactly that. And so what IBM is doing now is they're, they're licensing and open sourcing all of uh, this entire process. And so it's a question of whether or not this is going to be enough, because right now it's a very competitive market. You have AMD that is providing severe competition to Intel. You have ARM, which is taking off its on a, in a totally different way than we probably expected it to. Uh, and so, as Open Power continues to uh, continues to evolve and continues to move forward, IBM is taking uh, their uh, where was it the the Open CAPI accelerator interface. Um, which is its memory interface and it is and a key feature of the Power 9 processor. And that's going to be coming out later this year. Now, if you're not familiar with OpenCAPI as I wasn't familiar with it, it's basically a high-speed processor expansion, or, uh, uh, expansion bus that was originally designed to be layered on top of PCI Express. So the idea is that you could directly connect uh, your CPU to an external accelerator like a GPU or an ASIC or an F FPGA. And anybody that has mined Bitcoin is familiar with how those outboard processors work. But the advantage with OpenCAPI is it offers low latency, high speed, direct memory access interconnects between devices of different instruction sets and different architectures. So the fact that this is going to be out in the open is absolutely amazing. There's some work that has to be done to reduce the amount of communication methods and protocols that are being employed. Um, but this is going forward. Uh, quote from the article, open CAPI and OMI are architecture agnostic. The goal is to enable others to create their kind of concurrent accelerator and memory interfaces in an open standards environment, says King. We're hoping over time that we have to be having these discussions and with OpenCAPI, we're able to work with Intel and Convergence Open and Convergence Open ACPI, CAPI, excuse me, and CXL to converge them into one common standard. So there's a lot of interest in this, and it is going forward. And I'm very happy to see that again. Power Nine uh, continues to move forward. Another article that we just don't have the amount of time to get to that I would like to spend on it. Pine sixty four is giving back. So we talk about free as in free and not as in beer uh, and Libra, you know, as opposed to gratis and all of those things. Well, the Pine sixty four or the Pine uh, the company that makes the Pine sixty four, the Pine Book, the Pine Book Pro. They are doing something very interesting. All Pine 64 hardware relies on community software and third-party projects. And the argument that they make is nobody really donates to a lot of these projects that everybody uses. <clears throat> SSL. So most of the Pine 64 products, they don't actually bring any revenue in. The Pine Book and the Pine Book Pro, they basically sell uh, for the cost. They make about 10 bucks per unit. And so what they're going to do with the Pine Phone 
is they're going to take that $10 sum per unit sold and they're going to donate it to partner projects working in the Pine Phone, which is really cool. So they're going to be a good steward of the community. And this is the kind of company that you want to trust. This is the kind of company that you want to do stuff with because they are good stewards of the community. And um, so they need to be able to, or, or what they're going to do is they are going to make financial contributions in one of two ways. The first way is through a promotion campaign. And the second way is they're going to actually allow users to indirectly uh, decide which project they want to donate money to. And I, I just, I can't tell you how cool of a thing I really think this is and how thankful I am that we have organizations like this that are making really great hardware that continues to get better. And they have not succumb to the, I just want to own the market. And so I'll do whatever is necessary to do that. I think that's very, very cool that the pine people are trying to give back to the community rather than seeing what they can take for it. And it absolutely makes me want to buy a pine book pro the second they become available for purchase as well as a pine phone. I'm actually looking for an offline way to store data. In fact, I was looking at a sharp, uh, electronic notebook because I just need some way to get ideas out of my head and onto something that I don't have to worry about them winding up on the cloud. And so I was thinking maybe some sort of an electronic notebook. That turned out to be a much harder challenge to solve than I'd originally anticipated. If you'd like to send feedback into the show, you can do that at live at asknoahshow.com. I'd love to take it. Joe writes in. He says, hi, my name is Joe, and I've listened to your show every week for the last year, and I've listened to quite a bit of the back episodes. I know that you continually suggest Ubiquity and Microtech products. In the last episode, you stated that the answer to questions are quite frequently. Do you happen to have a cheat sheet on which can be shared with the community for home networking, camera setups, home automation? Below are some questions that I'm sure you answer all the time, but I'm trying to nail down specifics so I can plan out my purchases. So I'll stop right there and I'll just say this. Um, I don't have a cheat sheet because it's an evolving list, right? Things change as time goes on. Technology is not static. I would be open to creating an entry in our knowledge base, which I frequently link to the show, and I could just continually keep that updated. Um, so to answer some of your questions, is the Ubiquity Unify AC Pro the AP model in which in which you can put one on each floor of a 3,600-square-foot 3, house? Yes. In fact, I would tell you that a UAP AC Pro, unless you have concrete walls, probably one would cover a 3,600-square-foot house. Is the Microtech RB750GR3 the model you recommend, and what retailer do you suggest for it? Yes, I think that's a great router, and I typically buy from Amazon. The only time I, I do something different is if I am... If it's a business and it needs to go in a rack, we'll buy the 3011 uh, because it's rack mountable. Uh, not that I've ever actually hit the processing power of the 750. The Raspberry Pi running the Ubiquiti Unify controller with a nightly backup to USB flash drive in case the SD card dies. Yes, you can do that. I have a link or I have a guide linked for you in the show notes. You can get that at podcast.asknoahshow.com. You can absolutely run it on a Pi. Here's something to consider. The cloud key from Ubiquiti is about 79 bucks. The Raspberry Pi is $39, plus you got to buy an SD card for another 20 or 30, plus you got to buy a power supply for another 10 or 15, plus you got to buy a case for another 10 or 15, and then you got to take the time to set it all up. And so if it were me, I would just buy the cloud key rather than worrying about uh, trying to run it on a Raspberry Pi because price-wise, it's going to be about the same. As far as backing it up nightly to a flash drive, if you're really concerned about it, you can. The truth is, once you have the configuration file, unless you change anything, there's really no need to continually back it up. If the, if the SD card dies, oh, well, as long as you have your configuration backed up, you can go do it again. I don't know that I would do it every night. I would just do it when you make a change. What 24-port PoE switch would you recommend? Depends on what you're doing with it. Uh, if you're running Unify cameras, you're running Unify access points, I would get a Unify switch. It doesn't have some of the advanced switching capability that HP and Cisco has, but it has enough that you can get the basics done 
and um, then you can manage it from the controller, and that's a really nice feature to have. Is If you want to do something else, then I would go with an HP uh, managed PoE switch. Is the G3 dome camera stationary? Yes, they don't have any pan-tilt zoom cameras. It's one of the things I don't like about Unify. I think that they need to expand their camera offering, and I wish they conformed to an open camera standard so that I could use other non-Unify cameras with their NVR, because I frankly think that the Ubiquiti NVR is the best camera uh, software out there. What camera would you suggest with tan-tilt zoom and night vision so I can adjust it with the software instead of getting on a ladder? Unfortunately, I don't have a great recommendation for you. I have tried some TP-Link cameras, and I've tried some cameras from a company called Axis, A-X-I-S, and they they make some cameras that do some of those things, but they don't have the nice integration that Unify has, and so it 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 starts to feel like a bad science project, and I just don't have a lot of tolerance for that. I've I've complained numerous times with the the gentleman that you heard on the show last week, Chris DeLuca, that we just don't have any real great solutions for cameras, and I would like to see that change. So hopefully that comes up. Thanks for all your help and your awesome contributions contributions to the community, Joe. Hey Joe, thanks for writing in. We really appreciate you being a part of the program. And asking those questions via live at asknoahshow.com. Hey, major, major, major updates to Linux Delta. You can now sort. It's actually becoming a resource that you're able to do some uh, categorization and research. The next thing that's going to be coming up for Linux Delta is user creation. We're going to start doing user management. We wanted to get everything else out there working, but it is a resource that you can use. I wrote a bunch of reviews. You should, too. Head over to linuxdelta.com. We'll see you next week.